everyone, and welcome back to Stand By Go, the theater podcast out of Asheville, North Carolina. I know it's been a few weeks since I put out a new episode, but I got around to interviewing this week's guest, stage manager, Rebecca Fagan. Hey, Rebecca, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I am not bad. So you're joining us all the way from San Diego, California. I am. And it looks like... I was just about to say, it looks like it's bright out there. It's very bright. It's a little overcast today and fairly humid. So, yeah. Um, So I think you are officially, you have the crown for the furthest person that I've talked to um, on the Standby Go podcast. Um, And so congratulations. There's no prize, but congratulations on that. (laughs) Um, we'll just go ahead and and jump right in it. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your history in theater? My journey. Um, so I've only been doing theater about coming up on seven years and I lived in a small town up in Northern California and, uh, there was a small repertory theater up there. And just by going out and drinking, because I was also, I was a server at the time, so I would let out and then go to the local bar. And most of the theater people would go to the local bar, so I started mingling with them. And I always grew up watching theater, and I went to that theater quite a few times to see shows. Um, but once I started mingling with them, I'm like, oh, this, this crowd's pretty cool. And then their stage manager at the time, her name is Leah Metz. Uh, she is a... Los Angeles-based stage manager, but was living up in the area at the time, uh, got a hold of me and she said, hey, like, I just lost my backstage person. Do you want a job? And, you know, me hesitating. I was like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm getting into, but I guess. And she's like, great. And so my first show I worked on was a little show called Pump Boys and Dinettes, which has been around for forever. And it was, it was a really fun show that I really loved working with the actors and working backstage. And just the more I got to know what Leah's job was as the PSM, I really fell in love with it. And kind of at the time I was in a lull trying to figure out what my career was going to be. I was pursuing a degree in communications um, at the local uh, junior college. And so just by working on this show, I really fell in love with the community and fell in love with what stage managers do. And then she kept hiring me on as her assistant. And um, I decided that, you know, this is where I want to go. And I'm originally from Sacramento. So I looked into the program at Sacramento State and ended up going there for undergrad and uh, worked in the community for quite a while. And now I'm in grad school, going to my last year in grad school at UC San Diego. Very nice. Yeah, it always seems like with working backstage, most people are thrust upon into it. Yeah. It's not so much of like, I want to do something backstage. It's more like, hey, um, I need somebody back here. Why don't you... That's how, I, that's how I got started. My sister was a stage manager for the regional theater in my hometown. And one of her backstage folks had to have like life-saving surgery or oh. something like that. And I was in a year-round school. So it was in eighth grade and I was on a three-week break from school. And she called my mom and she's like, um, can I use John? Because uh, I need somebody back here. And mama, mama was like, you know, well, he's not... He's not in school, so sure, go ahead. Had no idea what I was doing. It was just like, people back here will tell you what to do and when to move things. So 
Yeah, yeah. and that I mean, I joined, I started working on that production, I think like the week before we started in tech. So like, I didn't really even go to any rehearsals, but uh, Leah caught me up to speed and she was just like, this is like what I need you to like watch out for. Not like for bad things, but she's just like, you know, I want you to keep your eye on this. Like, this is what a prop table is. Like, this is your main responsibility. Or at least we'll start you out here. And she's just like, you know, if anything breaks, let me know. Like, um, if you notice something would actually like be better being on the other side of the stage, let me know, you know? And then like, I, I was, it's, it's such a small company, um, that usually they only have like one ASM backstage and typically like one or two crew people, but I was the only one backstage because the show really didn't need much, but my track was still fairly busy. Um, it was a unit set too. So there were no set changes except it, um, was there an intermission? There was an intermission. I think I had something at intermission that was really minor, but like there was a, there was a moment where two of the actors came off stage and I had to get, help them get on their, um, tap shoes. Cause it was a quick change. And like, so my track was fairly easy. And then it ran, I feel like it ran for forever. I feel like it had, it probably wasn't a six week run, but it felt like a six week run, you know, kind of like when you get into it, you're like, Oh, this is going on for forever. And we had a spot up, um, that, uh, ended up just kind of not showing up one day. So Leah uh, was just like, well, you know, can you figure out like when you need to be backstage and like, then we can figure out like where we could like not have a spot, but like you can run then to behind the audience and be a spot up. So I also in that show learned how to be a spot up at the same time. And it was really exciting. I was just so excited to learn new things and to like, be a part of an artistic process because I had so much fun and I was challenged, but it was also very like, I could see, um, not only was I a comms major, I was also a statistics major. So my brain was very like cool communication, but also like the logistics side and like the story side of math. And so I loved that stage management was so much about, um, it kind of mixed the two together. Like you still have to be very organized and be very like logic driven, but also it's so much about communication and I loved also the artistic side of it, which is like, I mean, I grew up dancing, so I was like very used to the arts, but never thought of it as a career. But I felt like all of those skills put into like the role of the stage manager. It was just such a through line for me where I'm like, yes, this is what I need to be doing with my life. And just to go off of that, do you remember when that like light bulb went off of when you were like, yes, I want to be a stage manager and yes, I want to do it for a profession. Um, I think I know like I was instantly hooked. I mean, I don't want to use like such a cliche phrase, but I know like my first show, I'm like, Oh my God, I love this community. I think that was the biggest part for me is like, I love the people I'm working with and the work it's like the stakes are both really high and not high at all at the same time. So it's like a lot about self-motivation Um, and so like, I remember Leah took me under her wing for a couple of shows and then I ended up working with a couple other PSMs before I didn't, before I left that theater and just thinking like, I I really liked that everyone had their own style. And that was something I was worried about too, is like, I, you know, making sure I found my own style and was that okay. And I noticed like that everyone does have their own style and it just, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't like mostly it works. Um, and so I think it was just being able to be so independent and self-driven. I was really drawn to that from the beginning and then the work and the community is what kind of kept me coming back. What was your first show as a stage manager? Like where you were like the stage manager? I was PSM. Um, 
want to say it was at Sac State. Because uh, my, yeah, it was at Sac State. My first semester, I was the first ASM on Avenue Q. And then at Sac State, there isn't really much of a stage management program, or should I say there's not a stage management program, but they need stage managers because they do productions. So there are no classes that are taught, or at least weren't when I was there. There might be like some kind of something now. Um, so I do remember going there and I, you know, I'd spoken with some alum that had gone through and they're like, well, heads up, there's not really much of a program, but I liked that because it would have given me like kind of that independence again, to kind of figure out my own path and kind of the freedom to figure it out as I go, which is how I work best. Um, and so, yeah, my first show that I ASM'd at Sac State was Avenue Q. And then after that, they're like, oh, you can handle big musicals. You're fine. And so the first show that I PSM'd and the first show I called ever in my life was The Producers, which is not a small show at all. Oh, wow. It is not a small show at all. And I remember I got, I got, I got chosen, but like I was assigned to it and the faculty thought it was a good idea because also the director who, um, had historically directed all the musicals like he used to work on Broadway and he was known to be what they said was like hard to work with but like what I found is that actually he just had really high standards and it was about meeting those standards and we developed a really wonderful relationship I worked on two other shows with him after that I worked on uh, Guys and Dolls and Annie with him as well but uh yeah so producers was big and also like I got to thinking about this the other day is like what I really did during the producers I mean, yes, I did a lot of like the PSM work, but also I was given a lot of AD responsibilities and in a way like not even scenic designer responsibilities, but like I was in charge of um, choreographing all of the scenic transitions. And um, like during rehearsals, I was taking blocking, yes. Um, But like I was more than anything also like taking recordings of the choreography and there wasn't a dance captain but he had me try to notate dance as best as I could because I have a dance background and um so it was interesting because I picked up a lot of skills that I think it just depends on like what company and like what show you're working on that you might employ those skills but also isn't necessarily either like skills you might use all the time so um but like yeah we developed that relationship and then worked on guys and dolls with him which was equally as large um, and yeah, I learned how to, like, I, on producers, I really learned how to work with a lighting designer too. I think it, it like kind of like teching from the table side is, was so different. I felt like I was so out of my element that I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and that was really intimidating to me. But then like when I worked on the second musical, which was, was it the next quarter or the quarter after? Can't remember how it staggered that year. Um, but guys and dolls like I learned a lot that summer working for Summerstock Theater Company and then I'd already known that director I was working with a different lighting designer so I also picked up like kind of like different language from that lighting designer and it was just kind of it was always yeah my first show was terrifying um mostly because of the size of it and I'd never done that kind of tech before like from the PSM standpoint but then like the second show was equally as challenging in its own way Yeah, I remember that uh, that first tech that I that I was in, where I was running it, and all of a sudden it was like, "All right, John, it's time to start." And I was just like, "Okay, okay." Um, I know, like in my mind, just like I know what I have to do, and I know what the words I should say. It's just getting them from the head to the mouth, 
Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, at Sac State too, it's, or at least the productions I worked on, there was the PSM, it, it, the stage management team really operated like I feel a hierarchy. So like as a PSM, yes, I had two backstage ASMs and they were though, they're more, I mean, they were in charge of props and then in charge of costumes and they were way more hands-on. So I feel they operated more like, um, what like a deck carp would be or like a costume lead on, on a show. Um, so I was also like, I, I was also in charge of putting together the tracking for the crew. Um, and then that, I mean, that fed into like the transitions and everything, but I like had a lot more interaction as a PSM with the crew than I feel I do now. And, um, that was something that was really challenging. Like, as I started to learn, like started to work more in the professional world and now like in grad school, that was something that was really challenging was like, what is, as the PSM, what is my relationship with the crew? And not just like the head, like the like head deck carp or like the um, lead costumes or lead wigs. It's not about like the area heads, but like what is my actual relationship with the crew that is doing my work? So like, that's something I like, I, I felt very nervous about. Um, and then, so something I do on every show is I make sure I get to be familiar with everyone's names on the crew, whether they're on headset or not, just where I have that familiarity um, and that I'm not just some like distant voice that they're hearing through a headset. Um, yeah. So that's been an interesting transition. And also like, of course that like shifts your paperwork and shifts your role and responsibility in a little bit. Um, and also like shifts your um, relationship with your ASMs because now that responsibility is on them and like, how can you support them while not stepping on their toes? So it's just been like, I think that's the thing I've been really working on the hardest is like my relationship with my crew and my ASMs now as a PSM. Yeah, I can see that that being um, an interesting transition. No matter where you go from like A to B, uh, we were ju- we were talking what last week about like with some of our some of the biggest transitions from working in myself being a community theater stage manager to going into grad school and the professional is just that whole the relationship between you know, the booth and everybody else backstage and not just people who are on the headset. And I'm just going to take a, a real quick break. This is for the people who are watching on YouTube. And uh, if, if anybody's listening, you may have heard this, but there is a dog in the background of, of Rebecca's um, uh, video. And as you know, we are a dog-friendly podcast. So what is the, what is the pupper's name? So this is Sandy. Sandy. And, and we're coming up on our six month anniversary. That's going to be on Thursday. Adoptiversary, not anniversary. But yeah. Adoptiversary. Uh, so I adopted her yeah, on St. Patrick's Day. And I just closed the last production I worked on, which is like trippy to think it's been six months since I've actually worked on a physical production. Yeah. But I adopted her about a week and a half after the production closed. Cause like, um, I was able to, I luckily was able to like, we closed on our closing date and not sooner, but like then everything was shutting down, you know, theaters were shutting down everything. And you know, this pandemic is really starting up. And so I'm like, well, I'm probably going to be at home a lot and I'm not going to be working on productions anytime soon. So might as well get a dog. And she's been the best thing. I got her from the shelter. She's a shelter pup. And two days later, after I adopted her, um, the shelter shut down and they started fostering out the dogs. Let me grab her really quick. And she just got groomed yesterday. So she's looking very dapper. Wow. Look at her. 
I know. Isn't she fancy? What kind of dog? So the shelter said she is a miniature schnauzer, but I think she's mixed with Jack Russell. Ooh. Her personality and her hair type and how she is. Well, she's a beaut. She's a love. She's an absolute lovey love. I think I need to get a a podcast mascot Um, (laughs) is what I need to get. Um, Because, yeah, I mentioned to have a dog. But, but yeah, so good old Sandy and, and, uh, happy six months, uh, on Thursday, which is when this podcast will be out. So it'll be six months when this podcast comes out. Um, for you. Yes. Adopt, don't shop. That's, that's, that's (laughs) always my, that's always my thing. Adopt, don't shop. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. She's been the best thing to happen to me. And I mean, not to get way into her story, but I'm her third owner and her last owner turned her in for quote unquote behavioral issues because she barked when people came over, which makes me really sad. It's like, well, that was dogs are supposed to do. do, So sorry. She's not like super quiet all the time, but she barks when people come over. That's what she does. That's what dogs do. (laughs) I feel it was in the stars. It was meant to be. No, honey. All right. So we'll get back to, uh, to stage managing and, and working backstage. Uh, you, now you said your first show was a unit set, so there wasn't any, any, uh, scene changes, but do you remember any of your like crazy scene changes from when you worked backstage? Yeah. I mean, what was it? Two shows later, maybe it was three shows later. I worked on at the same theater company. Um, I worked on the drowsy chaperone, which I love that show. And the scenic design was, there were these, uh, three was it three or two what what is my brain doing I think it was three slip stages up all the way upstage and they would move in different um patterns to look like the different locations and those slip stages, and also the state like off stage there was not a lot of room so sometimes like we had these poles um that we would push these slip stages from one side of the stage to the other from stage right to stage left and it was hard because we had to slow them down just right to where they wouldn't smack into like the building because it wasn't much wider. And there's some, sometimes to get it going from what, if it was all the way up against the wall, uh, the side wall, we had to like get on them and like scoot it off the wall and then push it smoothly. And it was like, I lost weight working on that show. It was like a very <laughs> physically intense show. Um, and also there was just a lot to do. There were also these rotating bookcases that we had to like move and we couldn't like step into it or we'd be seen by the audience. It was all arm work, but that was pretty intense. So I was, uh, the only one on stage left. And then there were two other crew people on stage, right? Um, yeah. And so that was pretty intense. And then, I mean, like if I'm fast forwarding to Sac State, um, my one show I worked backstage, um, Avenue Q was pretty easy. I mean, I was like the main puppet wrangler. So I was more of anything like working with like handoffs of puppets. And it was a two-story set too. So like the most I'd have to do is like climb up into the second story and preset a puppet. Um, and then like there's at one point for the um, nightclub scene, this the um, entire, there were two wagons that the apartments were like set or designed on. And they would split down the middle and swivel upstage to reveal like the nightclub scene. So that was kind of the only thing that I really worked on. Occasionally, like I worked on the flies if like they, there there were a couple transitions where they just needed an extra set of hands on the flies. So I would 
our headsets were tied into the wall. So I would like, anytime I did help with any kind of, um, like scenic transition, I would have to take my headset off do the transition and then get back on headset. Yeah. So it was a little tricky when it came to like actually queuing things up. Um, yeah, that's when you go. That's when you go off of the lights. <laughs> when yeah, it gets well, when it gets dark, you move the set. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> and that's how we did it. We didn't even have like a cue light system, which I learned about a cue light system. God, like I, I mean, I had already been an undergrad for at least a year, and I'm like, what is this magical system you're talking about? And they're like, oh yeah, you don't have to be on headset, and just when the light goes off, you go. And I'm like, oh god, brilliant! And I got so excited about using it, and then we just didn't really have the capacity to set it up backstage. Um. Or rather, it wasn't really wired, so it would have taken a lot of um, just a lot of time to actually wire the system, even though it would have benefited um, future shows. But uh, yeah, so I mean, that's actually kind of an interesting thing too, because then I learned how to, as a PSM, like call predominantly verbal cues, and there was always that conversation with the backstage folks about like, well, if you're not on headset, this is when you need to take your cues, or like. Um, like, this is what you're looking out for. Um, does that work for you? Do you need more of a cue from me? So yeah, it's kind of like having the bare bones cueing system, like made me, I feel a better communicator. Um, not only like figuring out what other people needed, but also me making much clearer calls. Um, and I feel that's continued on like into my, even my current work, even though like I use a lot of like cue stuff. Um, it still has like made my calls much easier to know how, you know, actually I'm glad that I hear you say that. Cause I've never actually, I've never worked with Q lights. Oh. Um, my undergrad didn't have, well, we sort of had them. Um, we were, so we're in a round, our theaters in a round. And so we have a light outside each bomb. Oh yeah. Yeah. But half of them work, half of them don't work. And I only needed it for one show and it was, it just happened they were standing at the one that worked, which is nice. But I've never, like, I've, I've never cued, I've never called a show using cue lights. So it's nice to know that, um, that I'm not the only one. Yeah, who, it's actually, like, it's really, like, it's kind of cool because, I mean, really the only time you wouldn't use a cue light is for the light board app. But, like, where I had learned about the cue light system was I was working for Music Circus, which is now in Sacramento, which is now called Broadway Sacramento. And they use a cue light for the conductor, like, to get a hold of the conductor, um, to get on the phone or to, like, cue him off. There's also a conductor cam, so you can see that. But um, then also sound, which is its own separate booth they have a cue light that is for the cue lab cues. And then um, there are two operators there that are live mixing the show. So that's why they don't really want to be on, on headset unless they absolutely have to be. So there's that. And then, um, yeah. And then every one of their shows is slightly different. Like sometimes projections are tied in with the light board. Other times are called verbally. I've also seen it happen where it was, it was called up of a light, um, a light cue. Uh, or Q light. That's what they're called. Um, so the last show I worked on, which closed back in March, uh, at UCSD, it's called Orestes 2.0. And it was set up interestingly, like I, um, I was actually facing the audience. So I was up in the balcony facing the audience. All the action was happening below me. So I had to rely a lot on cameras, um, as well as like looking down. So sometimes it was about like, figuring out, okay, where can I see the actor best? Is it in my camera or is it looking at the stage? 
Um, but I really wanted to try because we had someone that was live mixing like sound. He was playing like instruments and doing a lot of Foley work. Um, doing that live as well as we had someone separately who was in the booth with me uh, doing sound cues. So I actually requested that there would be a, a cue light for both. And that just throughout tech, we'd figure out like the person that was on the cue uh, that was running cue lab always took his cues off of the cue light. But the guy that was mixing sound, sometimes he gave me cues that I would take lights off of. Like it would be a head nod because I also had a conductor cam. And sometimes he would take stuff off of me because it would have to be sunk up with lights. Um, so I would put him on a cue light and then call lights verbally and give and turn off the cue light to cue him. So it was just kind of an interesting system. And um, yeah, and then on that, I had the light board up, uh, projections and spot on headset with me. And then everyone else was off of a cue light which was crazy. Yeah. And then the conductor was like on a conductor cam and had a cue light. So it was its own system that definitely worked really well for that show. I'm really happy we took that route and the way we organized it. And it, I mean, we were talking about tech before we even went into rehearsals for that show because it, we knew it was going to be such a tech heavy show. So we wanted to have the systems in place early on to where we could be thinking about it during rehearsals, but also to where once we got into tech, we already had like our brain wrapped around it. And it, it really did make tech so much more like efficient and it ran so smoothly. Yeah. It's, I'm really excited to work with Q lights. I've always wanted to, it's just, I haven't worked in a place that either a had them or, or really needed them. And my community theater, um, I call, I pretty much just call the lights and um any like standbys for uh scene changes because their headsets are into the wall too so it's always like all right we're we're a page away from you doing this scene change and so they're like all right going off headset and it's the most terrifying thing as i'm sure you know it's just like i uh, the you know the camera that (laughs) yeah i mean the, the camera that that kind of shows what's on what's on stage, it doesn't work the best. And so you're like, okay, is that, is the scene change done? I don't have anybody. And when I was, I was doing little women um, mm-hmm. and we were about three weeks away from tech week when everything shut down. And I was just getting to the part where I was figuring all of that stuff out. I was like, all right, one ASM will do the set changes. The other ones will stay on headset and stuff like that. I'm calling lights and they, they actually have their stage manager do you uh, do the Q lab um, or whatever oh, system they use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's just pressing the space bar. So it's instead yeah, of ca- right. instead of calling both, it's you're really just calling one and then pressing the space bar for the other one. Yeah, and I I mean my undergrad was really similar to where the first couple shows I worked on there the. Um, PSM in the booth would do the light cues. Um, and usually the, the soundboard person, if there were any sound cues, would call their own unless it really had to be sunk up. Yeah. Um, but like the last show I worked on was really tech heavy and I requested, I'm like, I don't want to be responsible for this like light board op. And I was already working professionally. So I was also like, in the real world, like this doesn't <laughs> happen. And I was trying not to be snarky about it, but like it's, I mean, there was already, it was already challenging going from also being so used to hitting like like doing my own lights to calling it because like then I mean there ends up being kind of that conversation with your light board op like it's 
as a PSMs, like I, I like to always be involved with like, if I have the ability to, to help like cast my crew in a way, like, you know, if I'm given a list of these are the practicum crew that I get to work with. Um, and these are their preferences. Like, since you know them personally, where do you want them? So I'd always make sure like anyone that was on a board op, um, and on flies were like the most responsible ones. Cause they're the ones that have to deal with timing and always have to be like super present and super ready to go. And I'm not saying like any other job, you don't have to be present. Um, but those ones, especially like if a light cue is off by a split second, it's going to be noticeable. And so like, I always, am like, no, no, no. I want these people like to be up in the booth with me. I know they're going to be here. I want them to be, especially like, and then you get your headset people. You're like, These, this is who I want to be on headset with me because I mean, it's also, I mean, you have your lulls where you have conversations. Yeah. But um, yeah. So I think that was also like a challenge is learning how to go from the instantaneous, I call my own light cues so I can time it out myself to learning how to call with like, like a slight early call to where there's not a delay and that i mean yeah calling like, those yeah calling those bumps just before exactly yeah. and yeah. it's learning, like learning your light board up is like do they call it on the g or do they call it on the o you know what yeah. i mean yeah so i um i do the same thing with with as much as possible getting the people that i want where i want them uh, which can be kind of tricky in a community theater because it's not necessarily up to the stage manager. It's just, I have such a good rapport with our technical director and with our front office folks that I'm like, uh, Hey, do you mind if I have these people as my ASMs? And what I like to do is I like to have people who, um, like not like stage managers in training, but people that I know, uh, would be good stage managers in the future. And then just like, like, put them as ASMs and, and then teach them as they go. But, uh, when I was doing one second, mm-hmm. when I was doing, uh, little women, I did the same thing with my light board operator. And luckily my light board operator, like if I'm sitting here, uh, this is at Asheville community theater, my light board operator is right here. Same here. Yeah. So I, and I've never, I've always been right next to my light board operator. Um, and so I actually, I give a verbal and a, and a visual. So oh, all of mine are, all of mine are standby and then go. And it's Got like, it. and when I do that, that's when I want you to press the button. There was, there was one time during into the woods and this had nothing to do with, um, my lot board operator. She was amazing, but those bumps, I mean, if you know, Sondheim, those bumps are everywhere. And I just yeah. couldn't, there were a couple of times I just couldn't get it right. I mean, a big, a big reason why, why is because we didn't have a camera on the conductor. And so Ooh. I had to guess how long they were going to hold that note for the, the end wow. of the opening number. Um, and usually I could feel it. And right. the couple of times where I missed it, I almost was just like back up. I'm just going to do it myself. And then just, yeah. but I was doing it in a university setting where, yeah, it was, it was also my first musical. So it was like, I needed to learn how to call it and they needed to learn how to do it. But there have been so many times where I've just been like, just back up, just let me do this cue. Mm. Cause it's so. Yeah. Like, and it, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's so important. and so timely that I would just rather do it because I know exactly when it's going to hit, but I've never, I've, I haven't done that yet. Um, and there were a couple of shows where I mean, I haven't done a lot at ACT, but, um, 
there have been a couple of times where I was like, I think I'd actually just rather be the light board operator and call the sound cues. Mm. <laughs> um, right. Cause there's so much musicality in calling that. And like, I like, I've had similar things, like same thing in my university, we didn't have a conductor cam. Like luckily they were often raised up enough cause the pit, you know, it was right in front of the stage. It was a proscenium. And um, my booth was above the audience. So I would see the stage like without any monitors. And often I could see like the head of the conductor and sometimes like an arm. Um, and so there was often that conversation with the conductor, like, oh, okay. Like there, there are a couple cues where I need you to be a little bit more dramatic than maybe you would be just where like, I need a head nod or like a, I, I need to know like where the upbeat is. So can you like be a little bit more dramatic with bringing your hand a little further up for that yeah. upbeat? Cause I need to call stuff there. But like when you were talking about like how you would, um, think about like reaching over and calling the key yourself. I actually did the opposite. There were some cues that I knew were zero counts that I'm like, I either never could call well, or like I would always like call slightly late because I'm like, once the, once the words finally come out of my mouth, like it's already done. So there were a couple keys where I'd actually give the light board up, um, just ownership. And I would like, I would be like, okay, well stand by for this cue, call it when, you know, you know when to call it is essentially what I would say. And they would always do it right on the money. Cause it's like, to them, it's like one less thing than hearing the call and reacting. Yeah. It's they're just reacting. Yeah. When, um, so two things about that. One was when I was a light board operator, one was when I was a stage manager. So I was actually ASM for the fantastics earlier this year and our stage manager got sick and had to miss a couple of shows. And I had to go call them, had to go call the show. And there were some light cues that were just very, you know, it was the last weekend, luckily. So I'd, I'd heard the last three weeks of the call. So I, I knew most of them. And a lot of like the really like very time sensitive ones were on the light board operator. So a lot of the doing that show was, all right, you know, it, you know, standby light cue 65, you know when to take it. And she'd be like, yep. And then she'd take it right away. And then the the other time was, it was the first time I did Avenue Q. Cause actually you and I have, um, you know, the same position on the same show. I was also, I was the ASM and the puppet wrangler for Avenue Q. Yes. Um, love that. A couple years ago. Uh, but a couple years before that, I was a lightboard operator for Avenue Q at a different theater. And um, that stage manager just could not get the bumped calls right. She was either way she was either way early or way late on them. And so one time she went down to talk to the director. I was up at the board and um I asked the light board operator if I can do do some stuff. He was like, Yeah, that's fine. Or the designer. And the band kept practicing. Uh the end of a uh, so I was just practicing taking the bumps right. with them. And all of a sudden the director and the stage manager were watching me hit the bumps. Um, and she came back up and was like, you're taking all of the bumps from here on out. So, yeah. yeah. So she would do the same thing. Yeah. Avenue Q is really interesting because sometimes they have like the double bumps and sometimes they have the single. So in a or way, they have the false bump. There's that false bump. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you have to like, and each song's a little bit different. So in a way, there's a little bit of memorization too. Is like, oh, is this the song that goes bump, bump? Or is this the one that just goes bump? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Well, what, what is that song that has that false bump? It's the... Um, purpose it's that little thing yeah. flamed yeah that song that's the one that has the false bump at the end yes it's like, and then, um, purpose purpose okay. purpose da, 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 da. don't and you're just yeah. like ah don't take it on the first one yeah yeah 
Yeah. I think internet is for porn also has it, but don't quote me on it. Yeah. That I was I, internals, but I always had a hard time at the end of it. I remember the craziest song of that show. Um, oh, what's the name of it? Uh, it's like the really raunchy one. Is it the one where the puppets are having sex? Yes, yes, that oh, one. Oh, it's um, uh, when you're. Oh, is it? It's the one that Greg Coleman sings. Oh my god, everyone that's probably listening to this is like, it's this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one. It's uh. When you're loud, it's something. Yeah, don't worry about being loud. That one. Yes, yes. Yeah, when, that's when you're that one's. Loud, yeah, yes. that one's so hard because of all the like the different. I actually, I most of the time when I'm a lightboard operator, which I love being a, a lightboard operator, I can watch the show and just you know go go go. But that song, I had to do like this, like just listening. Right. Gotta listen, right? That's probably one of those yeah. shows that I would be like, just just let me take over the board. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I was always like, so first show I called was producers and I called that off of, <laughs> I, I was not as technology, technologically advanced as I am now, but I called it off the libretto and then, you know, threw my cues in there and wrote myself little notes like, Oh, there's a four count after cause I knew music too. And then I had for guys and dolls, uh, the light, the, um, lighting designer has worked professionally everywhere. Her name is Pamela Gray. I love her. I was just like, you know, Pamela, like I've seen, I I just worked the season at music circus and I saw that the PSM there, Craig Hornis called off of, um, uh, called off of the score. And I'm like, you know, I've never seen this. And she's just like, well, it doesn't happen super often in musical theater. Most, most more than anything, people use the counts, but um, it's an opera technique. So she's just like, well, if you want to do opera, then definitely learn how to call off music. And I already knew how to read music. And it just like blew my mind that that could be a way to call a show. So for Guys and Dolls, um, which was the second call, second show I ever called, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this off of the score. And it was really challenging in that like, I mean... <sighs> Sight reading music is its own thing when you're playing an instrument, but also like when you're calling a show, to me, it makes a lot of sense because you can also see like where the time signature changes are and like when there's a key change. So your ears can kind of tune into it. Also like secret of the trade, it's much easier to follow the baseline than it is the treble because that's kind of usually where the inconsistent or where the consistent beat is. Oh, a bass player. Yes, it is. Yes, I know. Um, And so like learning those things were awesome, but also like there were little cheats where I'm like, ah, is this where there's going to be a double bump or like a false bump or is there going to be a real one here? But it was also equally stressful because I'm like, if I get lost in like one of the many dance numbers that don't have um, lyrics, I, it freaked me. There was one time I got, we did a lot of cutting and if, I don't know if you know Guys and Dolls, but there is this. Yeah, I was in it. Oh yeah. So there's the entire Havana dance number that is like insanely long and we cut it. Like we did uh, quite a few cuts to it. It was probably only about half the length. Um, but it was still stressful because like, I mean, there were a couple key changes I listened for, for sure. If I ever got lost, but like the end, I, I mean, I probably only called the end correctly, like three quarters of the time because I would always be like, Oh shit, where are we? Oh, like we're at the end of the song now. Great. Um, but like, honestly, like it, it was like a workout. It like worked my brain out in a different way, but I really did love calling for music. And I, I tried to, whenever I could, like I called, um, 
Uh, I worked at a company in Davis, California, uh, the Davis Shakespeare Ensemble. They're now Davis Shakespeare Festival. Um, and I called Wonderful Town, a show called Wonderful Town um, off of the score, which is awesome. And then I've also like PSM'd and called a couple operas. And I'm like, you know, it's like once... What's really nice is you don't have to memorize, I feel, the music as much as you would if you just had counts or like, heaven forbid, you're calling off the libretto. But it is easier to get lost, I feel. And it yeah. can be a little bit more stressful to keep up. That's yeah. me speaking. There, other people, of course, might be like, it's way easier. So, Yeah, I've never, um, I've never called off of the score. Although I feel like I could if I really need to. I just know there's a couple... I mean, I've been reading music since I was in fifth or sixth grade so yeah i feel like i could keep it up but every now and then like i'll go watch there's some uh great videos on youtube of like it's a video of like a stage manager calling an opera mm-hmm. and i'm like yeah i know how to read music and then i i am lost within the first five measures and i'm like i feel like i'm better reading music <laughs> than than this well, and it's opera- just scary opera is so its own beast too because often you're also calling like so-and-so to the stage or so-and-so five minutes until your entrance, which sometimes those timings, like sometimes like five minutes, 10 minutes or um, ensemble to the stage doesn't even line up. Like sometimes the five minutes are like approximated. um, And then you're also still in like calling cues off of the music. So it's kind of that mix of calling cues off music and calling cues off of the time rather than music, rather than the music. Um, and what was I going to say? Oh yeah. I took, uh, we did like an opera masterclass here at UCSD. And I did learn how, like when, like to attend, always attend like the orchestra read if you can, because what you could do is sit there with a stopwatch and, uh, make timings of like every 15 seconds or every 30 seconds and write that in your score. Mm. Um, and that also helps when it comes to like sections that might, be quicker um so you can also look at the pacing while looking at also like the score itself and that was really useful to me and i've used like whenever i worked on a musical or like um yes whenever i worked on a musical that's where i'm going with that <laughs> yeah yeah i uh, shadowed somebody who called a nutcracker mm-hmm. and every single one of his calls were off a of time was off a of time instead of actually anything else yeah. And I mean, when you, then when you get into dance, for example, it's, I mean, it's all a mix of like calling, like say, for example, a musical, it's a mix of calling off of the music, calling off the choreography and calling off some kind of like other visual. Yeah. Right. So like with dance, like for example, cause I worked on the Nutcracker last year, a lot of it was like, yes, off the music, but sometimes like you did call light cues off of like a specific move or like a specific like phrase within. Yeah. Um, Because I feel like you get lost on the, on which are we on? Like with the nutcracker, like which one was that? Was that the seventh one? Was that the 803rd one? Like, I don't know. I was actually asked to take over somebody's nutcracker this year. Um, It's not going to happen, but I also don't think I ever responded because I was already, or I wasn't going to say yes, because I was already going to be stage managing um, a different show. But yeah, I was at least off like a stage manager done it for years. She moved out of town and I was like, Hey, you want my nutcracker? I was like, yeah, but I was already signed on to do another musical. 
Um, you have to say for all of like the composers, I feel the easiest ones to call off. I I love like Russian composers because they're so like meh, 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 or at least it feels like that. So like Tchaikovsky, who does like Nutcracker and Swan mm-hmm. Lake, they're amazing. And then alternately, like I love calling um, anything that's by Gershwin because like also I feel like there are so many composers like uh, Gershwin or, um, Alan Menken who like in each of their shows, there's in a way like a formula or like a method to how their shows are set up. Like, you know, with Alan Menken, there's always going to be that like one polka song. And so like, if you kind of know how to call one of like, if you know how to call sister act, you're probably going to know how to call newsies. And just because like the songs are set up so similarly. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, really interesting because I had already worked on a couple Alan Menken shows and was very familiar with his work. And then I worked on at Music Circus in 2016 at Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it was actually oh. so cool. Oh, it's a beautiful show. Oh my God, oh. I love it so much. Listen, the other day, uh, I'm going to shout out to I'm going to shout out to her because she's like one of the few people that listens to every episode. Um, the other day, a friend of mine who was just in the reading I did, her name is Justine. We were both listening to hunchback like the the soundtrack at the same time without each without telling each other so this is for anybody listening that hasn't listened to to the hunchback soundtrack if you like the movie go listen to the soundtrack the full musical soundtrack if you like if you like church choral music you'll love this it has amazing amazing music from the top to the bottom it's one of those that doesn't have a bad song in it Go listen to it. Um, there is a version of it on YouTube. Um, it's the La Jolla Playhouse one, which is connected to the school we're going to talk about yes. here in a few minutes. Um, but yeah, it's that version. And it's just like so... Cast. Yeah. That is, and I think that's the cast that's the, that is the album. That is, yeah. Because they, I mean, they, they workshopped it, or it was an enhanced production at La Jolla Playhouse back in like... God, don't quote me on this. Like 24. 14 2013 and then they took it to broadway and then music circus we picked it up but yeah the original cast oh it did go to broadway it i i'm pretty sure it went oh i've always been telling people that there's no way that it can be on broadway because it's too expensive like because you have to have so many people that that chorus alone is that's gonna bother me i hope i'll look it up i'll look it up i'll look it up yeah i'm pretty sure it was on broadway for like a hot second or at least like ctg or something like because i mean there's a cat there's an upward recording i guess that's true um Um, yeah so like the og cast has like patrick page and um I can't think of anyone else because I'm like, I love Patrick Page. Um, yeah, but then we did it at Music Circus, which I'm pretty sure it was the first time it was ever done in the round. And it was this the most beautiful production because we had our Quasimodo was actually a deaf actor. His name's John McGenty and he's incredible. And so throughout he would sign. And then we had one of the gargoyles, um, yeah. actors playing the gargoyles. His name is Jim Hogan. He's awesome. Where was uh, that done? At Music Circus in Sacramento. Oh, and then it yes. went, and then it went to Fifth Avenue in, C- in Seattle. Yes, but and we yeah. were a co-pro as well with La Mirada down in Los Angeles, or just south of Los Angeles. Bottom line, such a beautiful show. Oh, it's incredible. Watch the bootleg, which I typically don't tell people to do, um, but watch it. I mean, from the the tech, the tech kid, the tech and design kid. It's so the way they do the lava from the top of the from the top of the cathedral is so the stage is beautiful. It's everything about it is good. It has one of my, 
my dream bad guy roles in it that I would love to play love someday. That. If I can ever figure out how to get that low on a bass, it's, oh. We, we actually, for our production at Music Circus, I hope I'm allowed to say this, but at Music Circus, we um, transpose that part. Uh, so it wasn't as low, but it was still low. Yeah. Um, and it still sounded fantastic. Um, yeah, no, and it's, so like getting back to the whole like composers all sound, like kind of have a formula and sound the same. So that is, that show, Hunchback of Notre Dame, is a, um, like, it's both Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz, which we know Stephen Schwartz did Pippin and Wicked, and he has his own, like, specific sound. So it's really interesting listening to Hunchback, because you could hear elements of both composers, and there are some songs where I'm like, oh, they're so at, like, not war with each other, but you could see, like, both styles are, like, there are moments where one will take over and then the other will come in, but it just really is so beautifully done. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, and, and going with the composer thing, same thing with, uh, with Sondheim. Sondheim yes. does the same thing. Like you can hear a little bit of sign of like the same, it's like, a, it's like a measure or two and like, it's in every show. Um, like progressions are very like, yeah. 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 Um, so what, what has been, one of some one or some of the hardest sequences for you to call when you when when you've been calling shows so like i always like i I think it's predominantly been on straight plays um because like i always liken like musicals are kind of like a freight train like it's gonna go like you're just gonna have to like keep up and anticipate anticipate it because you have the music to go off of and the choreography and it's just gonna go and so, like, of course, they're, like, within the scenes, there, there's that space for the breath. And, like, it can, you know, the pacing might be a little bit different every night. But for the most part, you're going to run within, like, three or four minutes each night of the same timing unless the band is, like, just a little off that night. And that happens. But, like, straight plays, I feel it is so much more about, like, not only breathing with, like, your company that's on stage, but also, like... I feel when I call straight plays, I have to learn to breathe with the audience as well. Because ultimately the cast is in response, of course, to the audience. Um, and so I think some of the most difficult sequences I've had, and I mean, I would consider difficult as like the timing is really hard to predict. So I just more than anything have to be on my toes, less like there's a lot of cues all at once. But I think it's been like, because I'm trying to figure out what is the pacing tonight? What are the actors responding to? And like, how is the audience like feeding into that energy and into that pacing? So again, it's like about like learning to breathe with the show. I'm trying to think like specific ones. Um, I think my most fun call honestly was the last show I worked on, which is a Rusty's 2.0. There were just a lot of cues. And I, I know I, I kind of explained like how the cue light system worked and like how the calling worked. But the show itself, I mean, it was like an hour and 40 minutes. It was a long in. And we and there were multiple discussions about adding an intermission. And ultimately, we decided against it for pacing purposes. Um, but it was just really slightly different each night. And also what was cool is because we had a guy, uh, we had our um, sound designer also playing live. He was also like playing instruments in response to the audience and the company. So it was like kind of another thing to be in response to. But like, yeah, there were some, I would say challenging sequences. This one actually was to music. We did an entire death sequence. Um, one of the characters was like murdered to Hotel California. 
And there were quite a few um, light cues in that because it was mm. like straight up choreography. It was like, yes, fight choreography, but it was very like, very artistic and um, a lot of light cues. And I also had to call the um, like volume up, volume down. And it was like, it was such a cool sequence. And I remember in tech, like, the first time I nailed it, I was so excited. I think we all have had those experiences where there's just this, this like super hard sequence and we finally get it in tech and like, you know, whether the board ops and the designers celebrate you with you or not, that's its own thing. But like <laughs> we were all celebrating on headset. But then I remember like coming back the next day and our lighting designer's just like, I have more cues for you in that sequence. And I'm like, I just perfected it though. I just did it. And then I swear to God, I, I feel like this, I and mean, this is probably not super accurate, but I feel like every time like we would have a new day of tech, she'd be like, Oh, so I have more cues for that sequence. And it ended up like I could I could show you my prompt book. But within that sequence between lights, cueing actors, because we also had cue lights for offstage for cueing actors at the right time. So between lights, cueing actors, and sound cues, um, I want to say there was close to 30 cues within about two minutes. Wow. So it was, I mean, it was a lot. It was really intense, but it was really fun to nail. Like each night I was like, it was one of my favorite sequences to call. Yeah. And like, there have been like some things like we just talked about Havana and I'm like, Havana was always a bit of a challenge because sometimes I'd get lost in the music, which I mean, like I was a baby stage manager, but also I still sometimes get lost where I'm like half paying attention. I'm like, Oh, I missed a cue, you know? Yeah. But yeah. So that one, and then there were a couple sequences I worked on, um, my last show at Sac State was a show called uh, In the Time of the Butterflies, which is a uh, uh, play by Caridad Svitch. Um, and she, like, the show is very in the style of, like, magical realism. So there were a lot of projections. And it was just a very um, call-heavy show. And there was, like, one where, like, there were projection cues that were, like, diary entries. And so one cue would bring up one diary entry and there were like little drawings. So it was like, you know, she was one of the characters had a monologue where she was kind of like writing in her diary and like, so it showed doodles and like different things. So like a cue would bring up a doodle, the next cue, sometimes it would just take the doodle down and it would be blank. Other times it would be a crossfade to another doodle. So I think it was kind of like wrapping my brain around like, okay, when do I need to call this? Because do I need enough time to then call another cue that will bring up another doodle or is this a crossfade? Like, so it was really about pacing that scene. And ultimately I just ended up calling it off her words because there was no other way I could have called it. Um, so there are specific words I found where I, if I called it right on that word, it would um, basically, as she was saying, like I, I could not quote the show to save my life, but um, like if she was saying like the water pot, like I would call it before the water pot for as soon as she said it, the water pot would appear. Kind of thing. Also, yeah. each one of them had different fade in and fade out time. So it was just a really challenging sequence to actually call. And I mean, definitely my first couple performances and throughout tech, I was always slightly behind, but then like, you know, eventually learned to like anticipate it and got more comfortable with it. So yeah, I think it's like one thing I've really learned, especially like when it comes to calling shows is getting out of my head and definitely like learning to respond instead of like, yes, there's like anticipating is important, but also there's like, I can, I know I psych myself up if I'm like too on edge about calling it perfectly. So I think there's also that grace of, if you don't call it perfectly. It's fine. Um, and also like just respond, be in the moment. 
I remember, uh, yeah, it's, it's way, it's, I feel like it's way easier to get lost in the story in a musical. Mm -hmm. You just get lost in the music and then, but it's also like, it's really nice when you're in the, in the middle of a musical and your, your calls are rhythmic. It's just like, and go. Right. Well, and then that gets back into our conversation of like, does the light board off? I I, I feel like I'm always saying like, it's about lights. It's not always about lights. So any other non-lighting designer out there, I'm (laughs) favoring the lighting designer, the the design itself. But like, it's, it again goes back into that conversation of like having the conversation with that light board off. Uh, do you call, do you take the Q on the G or the O? So it's also learning to like, sometimes like, and I really love when I get a lighting designer that is, yes, listening for my call, but they are more about getting it on the beat. So like they're really in tune with the music instead of sometimes waiting for my go. But like, I love the ones that really do call it on the G to where I'm just like, okay, we're with it together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was, as you were answering your, your question about your, some of your favorite uh, sequences to call, I was just thinking back to my into the woods ones. Um, mm. Because it had like 280 like you, something like that. And the way we, so we don't have any, we don't have any cameras uh, for anything. And like I said, we're in the round and the booth is up above. So like the round is in front of me right here. The booth is here. And you can see like three fourths, maybe like four fifths of the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see the whole stage, but there's two voms that you can't see from right. where the podium is. And so I had to like, there was one going from one midnight gone where everybody's just like one midnight gone, one like into um, there are giants in the sky. Mm-hmm. And so our, um, our guy, Ben Brown, who was an amazing actor, he would come, he would come in the vom that I couldn't see and he would jump and when he would hit the ground, that's when the music started. That's when he started singing. And that's when the lights went from a bright, like yellow as everybody's coming through bright, amber, white light, um, looking and it, it would go, uh, da, 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 and, and then it would like almost like a zero count to this dark blue. Yes on his on his land oh i love so the slight anticipation of it that was that was blind to me for the majority because i couldn't see him until he was in the air because even with my head against the wall against the window i couldn't see the bomb i couldn't see until he was in the air so it was just like this so like all right stand by he's coming he's coming and go there are giants in the sky and when i got that right it was nice. It's the um, best feeling. And the, but probably my favorite song to sing, to call was, uh, the wolf song, the wolf and, um, little red song when they were, when they both had their thing, but they're obviously singing about themselves. And so they're kind right. of in two different places and the lights would be very drastic. They'd be like, oh, skipping around and then dark when the wolf would sing. And the lighting designer, fantastic. Brian Marks. Um, Got to get him on the podcast. That's what I got to do. Because <laughs> that was all about anticipating like when it would shift to his music, when it would go back. And then at the end, the wolf like would howl into the moon, which was just a special that was coming straight down 
over the wolf and it was just oh it was so good it was to go but (laughs) there was one time i got a little too excited (laughs) this is when i knew my lightboard operator or my yeah my lightboard operator was really really trained so the night before i missed the opening number bump Oh, no. By, by just this much. Enough to be noticeable, right? And the, and the, yeah. And so the next night, I was like, all right, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. And I went, I went, let's go. And it hit perfectly. Crowd started going crazy. And I went, there you go. And she just heard the oh, word no. go and no. pressed the go button. So it cut off the applause. and But not too long. Like, it wasn't, sure. it, it didn't really change anything. But also, um, like, that being the first number, in a way, that kind of sets your pacing, too. Yeah. Oh. It was – yeah, I was so excited. And then I went, oh, it's fine. She was like, yeah. I, she was like yeah. I heard go. And so I was like, you know what? It's learning – you know, it's a learning curve for everybody. You yeah. learn to never oh. say go unless you mean it. Something I – not learned, but, like, was made aware of last show, so Arrestees, um, is – and I never thought about this until someone's like, don't say this. And I'm like, oh my God, I've literally been saying this for five years is uh, like if I'm on headset calling um, and someone's just like, you know, so-and-so for Becca, I would always be like, go for it or go ahead. And like, luckily, like, I mean, nothing had ever happened. Like, you know, a cue had been called or had been taken but like someone, I forgot who it was, it's just like, you know, you say go on headset. Like, and I'm like, well, obviously when I'm calling cues, they're like, no, no, no. Like when someone says so-and-so for Becca, you say, go for it. Or you say, go ahead. And I'm like, oh my mm-hmm. God, I never realized I, like it never dawned on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, I like had this, like, I feel like this crisis of like, who am I? Like, like, why am I like this? And I'm like, oh my God, it's, <laughs> It's yeah, just the little things. I'm so happy that no one had taken. I'm sure all, all the board ops that I worked with are like, oh, okay, that's not a go that I'm taking. Yeah, and luckily, you've, luckily, you've right. never. Nobody's ever been on a standby. I know, I know, I know. That's so interesting. It was such a little like. I, th- I can't. What do I say now? It's been six months since I've been on headset. Um, what do I say now? I think I'm like. I just say. I just say. Uh huh. Or yes. Oh no! I, I changed it to what's up. What's up? Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, I can't believe like all the years I've been doing this, all all six years I've been doing this. I've never noticed that that is a thing um, that I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, I, I feel like the, it's gonna be crazy that I think this is like a hard part to call, but you know what I always find to be the most overlooked part that typically has the most cues at like one, the very beginning of the show. Oh, okay. Yes. (laughs) Like the very, like, at least for us, like it's so many different because our curtain isn't completely closed because it has a projection screen. So we have to like close the curtain, bring up the projection screen, turn off the projector, you know, call the light cue, bring up, bring up the person. And it's just like, you don't run that on tech on tech Sunday. And so like the first time you run it, you're like, I have seven things. And when I had to go call the, uh, the show for the stage manager who was out, that's what I was the most worried about. (laughs) I was like, I've done this many times before, but just like, what order do like, what button do I press? Right. Well, and like I had that director that I worked with at Sac State and did all the musicals. 
loved doing the overtures. He was like a big overture and on track, like that little tiny baby overture after intermission person. And so like, that's where I actually found it came used to be able to like read the score. <coughs> Excuse me. To read the score. Cause I'm like, he would also like every time there was like kind of a mood shift or like, you know, how the, there's always like a, within the overture, there's like the previews of all of the songs, essentially. Whenever there was a shift in the next song, that would be, be a light cue. And like, I remember having the hardest time on producers when um, learning how to call the, um, uh, learning how to call, I just lost the name, not on track. I just said on track, the uh, overture. And, but when I did it with Guys and Dolls, it was so much easier. Um, and so that, that and the opening number is just so, it, it's such a challenge for oh, sure. Yeah, usually opening numbers, because they're so, there's so much going on in it. I mean, the Into the Woods opening number had 55 cues. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, same thing. I mean, Guys and Dolls, same thing had a, with the overture. And the first number had quite a bit. Because the song, it's, the opening number is like, like, five songs in one and then that one for guys no yeah. you know that's yeah that's guys that's the guys and dolls opener yeah, yeah. it goes from um right here and then it goes into follow the fold and then uh, runyon land i think is the thing that opens it it's like is that right runyon land um got the horse right here and then you go into um follow the fold and then it gets into a talking part, which ironically, like, I, then I had no cues for about 10 minutes. And so as long as I got through the first 15 minutes of the show, I was good. And there were no scene changes until we moved into um, the hot box. And yeah. Um, yeah, so I always call them like, I don't know if you, if I feel like I've talked to other stage managers and this is such a like unspoken thing, but a spoken thing, but you have your P songs where you know you have like just enough time to where if you absolutely had to, you can leave the booth. Yeah. And not worry about like a cue being missed. Yeah. And so like I, I like in Guys and Dolls, my P song was literally like 15 minutes into the show, which I'm like, well, that's useless. But yeah, I I have luckily, knock on wood, never really never had to leave during the show. Okay. I do it now when I do uh when I'm in a show, it's so weird. I always have to go to the bathroom the same time every show. Oh, funny. Um, so and it typically it starts during tech week, like like I, you know, like right before I do this scene. <laughs> yeah. And when I do, and when I did into the, uh, not into the woods, when I did, um, wizard of Oz, it was always like, it was a very specific time because once I got into that cowardly lion costume, there was no coming out of it. Ooh, um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, but our, we have a thing. It was actually, it was given to me by Brian, the light, you know, the light designer, um, and it's kind of a thing that was said backstage at UNCA, but also uh, there's one of the backstage people who does a lot of stuff at ACT. It's kind of our thing. And his, his was, it was pre-show starts with P. And so it's like, I love you know, that. so like my go-to, like my stage manager, my go-to is typically at like 10 till places. Right. And then luckily I have until intermission it, like if I have to, the, but I'm always terrible. Like I'm, I'm one of those people that like, I'm terrified that like, the second I leave, everything's going to go wrong. I get that. Like I, I was actually, I was shadowing a show. It was one of the, it was a touring production and it may have been, I'm trying to remember what production it was. Uh, it may have been like summer, the Dawn summer musical. Um, but I was, I was shadowing the PSM and they actually had it built in to where the first ASM or 
he was calling off stage left. I hope I'm talking about the right show. It might've also been another show, but I remember that, um, at some point during the show, cause it was kind of, there was like, like a long first act, something was going on where the first ASM had it actually written to their cues that they would check in on the PSM and be like, Hey, do you need a bathroom break? Mm. And then would like come over. Cause like she didn't have a lot of cues or she didn't have a lot going on in her track. Mm. So she had a couple minutes where she could take over the calling station and call his cues or call the cues of the, sh- the light cues and everything. Well, he went off to the bathroom and then came back. So I'm like, I mean, I've never had to have that happen before, but I'm also like, that's so brilliant. It's like to be able to like, yeah, leave your PSM, like no pun intended, but to be able to like give, yeah. like relieve your PSM. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm gonna yeah. have to write that down. Yeah. Cause I mean, also like on tours, especially like everyone is cross-trained or most everyone is cross-trained. Like usually it's the PSM oftentimes will call like the first couple shows in a new city And then like maybe they'll alternate like with the first and the second and everyone will call two to like two shows. Someone might call three shows a week. Um, But yeah, usually like the PSM will also be out in the audience because he's also the one maintaining the show unless you have a director or like someone with the company that stops by and helps you clean it up and maintain it. But um, yeah, typically the the, uh, PSM is out there either in the audience watching or watching from, from the stage management office on the monitor which is actually kind of cool yeah yeah that's uh, i've I've done a couple of shadows on broadway and that's always yeah. been very during intermission he's like yeah you want to come to the to the stage manager's office yeah sure, sure. oh yeah yeah don't mind if i do uh when i did that for lion king i went and sat in i, I also shadowed the lion king on broadway yeah i, I did it uh office yeah so in november this past November, I went for my birthday, took myself on a birthday, um, and I shadowed Lion King, uh, which was nice, which was great because that was the first show I saw on Broadway. So it was like a big, like, uh, you know, circle of life. And um, no pun intended. Actually, no, the, pun was, the, pun was, so. the pun was 100% intended, if anybody knows me well. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, it was very cool, you know, we probably did the same thing. They picked us up. We went up the elevator, yeah. sat and watched it and then went to the, it, it was, it's, it was really, it's interesting. Like I get, you know, these are Broadway stage managers been, you know, equity for years and have called this show for years. Oh, yeah. But, but part of me, I was sitting there and I was like, this guy who's calling the show seems way too relaxed right now. Did you watch Kenny call it? I don't remember who it was. He was, it was just this tall, um, this, uh, you know, tall, very quiet guy. We like sat down, like kicked off his shoes and it was just like <laughs> nonchalantly. Yeah. I'm about to call the, the Lion King on Broadway. And I'm like, I get that you do this, right. you know, all the time, but it's still so, like, we talked about it too. Like, uh, Kenny and I, when he had moments to spare, cause I mean, half the time he was like, I mean, this is not a bad thing. He was just texting. He was just like, I know when my slow moments are, I know when I can like, yeah. Not not pay attention, yeah. but, you know, not have to pay as much attention. But, like, it's interesting because, like, Lion King specifically, I mean, that show has been going on for so long. And the majority of their team has been with it for quite a while as well. Like, um, like some have been there with it for 10 years or, like, 12 years. And I think, like, someone 
that was working that day was with the show for five years and they called her like the baby. And I'm like, that's such a like crazy thing. Also, in case anybody doesn't know, uh, Lion King is one of the only Broadway shows that's called from above the audience. Cause yeah. typically most shows touring and Broadway shows are called off from like stage left, stage right, or somewhere on stage. Um, yeah. And I think like, I don't know if you had this reaction, but like I've, so I've never seen Lion King live. Mm. Like, of course I've heard the music and I love Ju- uh, Julie Taymor. Um, but I remember like, I was like, you know, standing behind him, calling the show, calling circle of life. And this like wave of emotion comes over me and I start like, and I'm like, I feel like I'm a very, not emotionally reserved person, but I'm very good with like being professional and not like getting overly emotional, especially when I'm trying to be like, I'm a professional and one day you should hire me. Um, but like I was standing behind him and he was calling it and I started to cry because it was just so like freaking beautiful it was like I mean it was just so simple but it was so beautiful and it was so iconic and like I just like kind of like started like tearing up and like tears were streaming down my face and I'm trying not to like sniffle and be obnoxious because I'm like this dude is also like this dude has known me for 10 minutes yeah he also is like calling a show I'm not gonna be that like one girl where he's just like oh yeah this girl shadowed me and she started crying but like I, I remember like it, it like, probably showed up in the report somewhere. I, oh my gosh. Um but like Shadow started he, crying. They did like each, each of the show I've shadowed, they put me in the report is oh where Shadow today was. But no, yeah. like he looked back, he's just like, You good? I'm like, Yeah, I've just never seen this live. And he was very much just like, Yeah, it's like a really it's really beautiful. He's just like sometimes it gets me too, and I'm like, it's <laughs> so good. Yeah, I didn't I didn't stand behind him. Um, he was like at his, at his little area and that little window to the right. Yeah. And then there was like, you know, the stack of electrics and then I was sitting and I, I had a headset, I was on a headset and there was a book, there was like a shadow book. I did. I I just, I sat for the majority of the time, but like I, I stood behind him for a couple of the numbers just to stretch. And he was like, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I did the same thing. Yeah. It was that, that was the, so I shadowed two shows in November Showed that in Oklahoma, which is also done from a booth. Um, At Circle in the Square? Yeah, yeah. And so, but with that one, I actually got to help with the preset checklist. Because, like, with Lion King, they were like, come 15 minutes before the show started. Yes, they're like, we may hear you. Yes. And, <laughs> it goes straight into this elevator. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. but for Oklahoma, like, I think their go, their, their go may have been 7.30 or, or 8, one of the two. I was, they were like, come an hour and a half before. Yeah. And so I showed up. Part of that is because you have to walk through the audience to get backstage for right. Circle and Square. Um, and I showed up and, you know, I met their stage manager and their ASMs. And one, there was like one that I was like assigned to for the day. And he was like, all right, well, here's your headset. Here's the clip. And we're going to go out and do the, do the pre-show check checklist. And so I was like, oh, cool. I'll just watch him do it from over here. He's like, no, come on now. Yeah. And he's like, all right, here's the checklist. Here's a marker. Yes. I love um, it. You're going to tell me you're going right down the list and you're going to tell me what's on the list. And I'll say, yep. And you just check it off. And so I got to, um, I got to help do the preset checklist for a Broadway show and it yes. was amazing. And at one point they had, they had a bunch of, um, swings and understudies in for that day because a lot of people because we went to the list and he was like well this person's recording something for netflix this person's recording something for netflix blah blah blah. and so we get there and we're about halfway through our checklist and two of the understudies are on stage practicing 
Yeah. And so our ASM was like, just hold off. Let's just watch them. And so I was sitting five feet away from these two guys practicing this really beautiful duet. And it gets to the end and um, they finish. I was like, oh, that was great. That was really great. And, and he was looked at the scene partner. He's like, yeah, I haven't done this before. I'm, I'm nervous about doing this. And, and the other guy, the guy who'd done it more, he was like, you know, it's okay if you mess up. I mean, like nobody will it's know. Like- it's live theater. And I, that was the, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about this. Um, that will, will probably be one of the most instrumental times of my life when it yeah. comes to theater and stage management, because I was standing on the deck of a Broadway theater yes. with a Broadway assistant stage manager and two Broadway actors who are nervous. And one right. guy said, don't worry if you mess up. It's live theater. Nobody's going to know and nobody's going to care. And it's just this whole idea of like, they're human. (laughs) They're just like me. I, because I I have this big, and for anybody who's like, John, how on earth do you know Rebecca? I know Rebecca because we met um, virtually on a, uh, at uh, the Broadway stage manager symposium at a, at a post party, like, side chat and we yeah. started talking about grad school which i promise we will get to in a few minutes um <laughs> and we've been talking about that and other things stage management since and a lot of some of the stuff that we've talked about is just like my feeling of insecurity on whether i'm good enough to to do it right and right. make it into grad school and stuff like this and it's just this idea of we're human you have a set of skills and you want to go somewhere to make those skills better and and I think there's like I mean that gets into like such a huge discourse about like the role of the stage manager and how there's definitely especially within the last decade been this huge shift of like (sighs) okay let me back up here So like whenever I see things that are like, you know, these quote unquote stage management sayings, like, uh, because I said so, or little things that are like so definitive and show stage managers as like the disciplinarians or the authoritative figures, it makes me cringe because it's so like, first of all, we're humans. Second of all, I hate that they're like labels put on our role and thus we either must fulfill those labels or we like don't really become known as humans that are working in that role. Um, But I think like when it, when it comes to like perfection and like that perfectionism and getting things right, or like if it's not right, it's wrong. I think can be such a destructive attitude because ultimately like if you, I know there was that one uh, stage management uh, symposium section that was about, um, like mental health that Maddie DiCarlo was a part of um, and talking about like the stage manager as the artist. I remember the one that was about the stage manager as the artist. There were so many people in the comment that are like, Oh, I've never considered the stage manager to be an artist. I never thought of it that way. And I'm like, honestly, and I think this definitely has a lot to do with like UCSD and their training, but I've always seen the stage manager as like the artist first. Cause like where our artistry lies is within our people skills and within our communication. And of course, like we've all worked on enough shows to be able to also have an artistic eye and like to kind of be that, like, you know, to be able to offer things to the director and to the production that, you know, might fill in some holes. Sure. But like we are artists as well. So it really, 
it does bug me when there's kind of more of an attitude that a stage manager is more of a technician and a doer because I'm like, I feel we add so much to the production just as much. And I mean, it's such a, it's a cultural thing and I do notice it's shifting, which is incredible, but like, yeah, I, I, got where I was going with this, but yes, the stage manager is the artist and like, Oh, it was about the perfectionism. And I think like, I definitely used to approach it. I used to be a huge perfectionist, even, even before like I got into theater and I still do have tendencies where I have very high expectations of myself. And I'm honestly like my own worst critic, but like, I've definitely learned to like tone that back as there's no such thing as failure because there's no such thing as perfect. And so it's all about being like happy with like the results. And also if you aren't happy with it, use it as an opportunity to learn for the next time. And so like, yeah, if you do fuck up something, you're like, cool, I know where I fucked up. I, and I'm not going to do it again. Or it's, it's a moment of, oh, I fucked that up. God, I'm just not being present right now. So it's a moment to be like, I'm going to be present. Like here we are. So it's a moment to like regroup and reflect and to be able to be better next time but also like that whole perfectionism like it really takes away from a kind of culture that I like to cultivate which is where everyone has should have the space to be able to mess up because honestly like again mess ups is sometimes where the best work comes from yeah. and being able to have that space to be comfortable enough to do that and not have it be perfect if if people feel safe enough and comfortable enough to take risks, they're going to, but if it's all about like product and perfection, then it's not going to be as good as it could. And I also extend that to stage managers. I feel like sometimes we need to fuck up to get it right. Or sometimes we like to experiment too. And sorry, like, yeah. And ask lots of questions. I'm also one, I like to know the why behind things. So especially in tech, I'm like, what, like to the lighting designers, like why are, why do you want it here? Or why do you, what, what is this look supposed to be? Mm. Great. Now I know kind of what your brain is thinking. So I know how to call it. I know how, how to adjust if things are, get off track, you know? So again, that's our artistry too, is like, not just like calling things on a specific note or prescribing um, equity rules to a situation. Sometimes you just have to like, be humans with each other and listen and respond. And that's where our artistry comes in, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there's a, I think there's an artistry of running a, a good rehearsal. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Like, of, of, of knowing, and this may, you know, I feel like only people who would understand this are stage managers and maybe directors right. <laughs> of, of like, well, we're, we're scheduled to take a break at seven o'clock but they're still sure. working. They need till seven Oh five. Exactly. And that, I mean, that gets into, we talk a lot about it in our program about Kairos versus Kronos. Mm-hmm. So Kronos is like, uh, it's, um, Oh my gosh. Yes. Kronos is like chronological. It's time. Mm-hmm. It is. This is the time we are going to like do this podcast. And then you have Kairos, which is timing, which is more incorporating the feeling around it. Exactly. Right. And that's the perfect example is yes, we are scheduled to take a break at seven o'clock. However, I see that like it would almost be destructive to the work or like it really would take away from the work if I were to call it at that moment. Yeah. And yes, of course we have equity rules that are like, you need to take it an hour and 20, but is someone yeah. really going to report you if you call a break three minutes late, later than you're supposed to? Probably right. not. You know, that's probably not, I mean, <laughs> not, 
to like crap on uh, the orchestra union, they might because they're a little bit more strict about things. It <laughs> kind of depends on the local, but no, but like it's, it's really so much about the feeling of, I was working on a show um, a couple of years ago. I was working on Balm and Gilead and the director who I'm actually now TAing for. And I love to pieces. She is very like, I, we joke around like there's time and timing. So there's Kairos and Kronos and then there's her time. And she just kind of, she operates off of like feeling and flow and like kind of once you find flow, don't interrupt it and let it naturally just stop. And sometimes like the, the PSM that was working on that show, she was just like, you know, I, we're never going to call a break on time. And that's actually, but that's okay. That's actually going to benefit the production. And it absolutely did. There was like a rehearsal we went on for, like an hour and 40 minutes. We went 20 minutes past the break, but we were just in such this, like this beautiful moment. And also it became a moment of moment of timelessness. So sometimes you do get lost in that time. And that is so, I mean, I, I think what I'm getting at too, I'm sure it's like, this is such an overarching theme. I'm so much more of a process person over a product. And I highly believe a really great process will lead to a great production no matter what. That is my opinion. Because it's just, if you're really only focused on the product, it could just really become a miserable process. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And usually you have that time to work on that stuff during the non-musicals. Usually the musicals, like you have this much time, it takes this much time to do it. We just got to produce it out. You got to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that kind of bugs me, um, and I think it, and, and it may be changing, and I'm pretty sure it's changing, but it's just this whole idea of the stage manager being the mean one. You know, yeah. like anytime you see like a, a skit or like a character of it, it's just like this over the top, very mean stage manager. But every yeah. single stage manager, like professional stage manager that I've ever met has been nothing but nice and giving and caring and yeah. like the whole shadowing thing. Like that, yeah. that is, that is an example of it. Um, I mean, where we met uh, the Broadway stage manager symposium, everybody goes to that is super nice. I've had, I don't know if you have had these, but I've had conversations with Matt Stern. He was on a, a episode of the podcast way early on, but like I've had multiple conversations with him and he's just super nice and giving. And it's just like, we're fraternity, you know, we're, yes, we're, we're a community we're, yeah, community. And you know, everybody's like, what do you need? Like, yeah. You know, hey, I need help with this. All right. Um, are you on the, are you on the, you're the stage manager Facebook page? I am. Yeah. It's like all the time. It's like, Hey, um, uh, I need advice on this. And it's like always like 20, 30 yeah. comments long. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree. I'm like, I mean, I definitely had to learn my, I mean, we all like come up with our own style and, and sometimes we have to like not act differently. I'm not saying we put on a mask or like a shield. <laughs> so says Brene Brown. We don't put on necessarily put on a shield to work, but also like there's, there's kind of this difference between formal and informal authority, right? Where formal authority is like, I am the person in charge. Like this is my role. These are my duties. These are your duties. And I'm responsible for my own. You're responsible for your own, but I'm also responsible for making sure you get your shit done. Mm -hmm. And then you have informal authority, which is just like, there's kind of like that understanding that we all have these roles and we all need to accomplish it. And it's like a lot, um, I'm like not doing the definition justice. And if Lisa Porter, the head of my program ever listens to this, she's just like, you know how to define these things. But informal is so much more about like, it's not about hierarchy or you are defined by your role, but rather it's all of us working together. And yeah, sometimes as stage managers, as a stage manager, I have to like, 
if shit isn't getting done or if I, uh, you know, I'm getting an, an attitude from someone, sometimes I do need to be like, or if someone's late is a really good example. I sometimes have to pop in, you know, first I'll usually be like, Oh, I just like want to check in and make sure you're okay. Like if you hit traffic or if you're like feeling okay. And then if it continues to happen, sometimes I'm like, Hey, like I notice you've been late multiple times and I really need you to be more conscientious about time. So there's kind of like the difference of like, I feel like with formal authority, it's like you're taking a step. I feel like I am like removing Becca from this like then persona that is enforcing the rules. But I also like, I hate the word enforcing, but like, no, I totally agree with you. Like I feel kindness so many times is seen as a weakness, but honestly, like kindness really goes along with like humanity and like humans are like the... I heard the best saying and it was like your resume and like your experiences are going to get your foot in the door, but who you are as a person is going to keep you there. Yeah. And I feel like it's so, I mean, not to use the cliche term, but you're going to catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, but it's like, you know, it's especially on longer running productions, like, you know, whether it be tours or like Broadway shows or like long running uh, regional productions, it's, you're working with these people every single day. So like, why be an asshole? Like, it's just like, (laughs) why create all of these tensions and all of this dysfunction and toxicity that doesn't need to be there? Yeah. My, my thing is always, and this is whether I'm an actor or a stage manager or a technician, it's just, um, you know, you're just, you're part of this family. Absolutely. That is that show. So, and like um, I've talked to a couple of the, the actors who are little women. Like we hate that everything had to go to virtual because we were just about to become this super close knit family. Um, part of it is because it is a family, you know, it's the March family, but it's, it's, you know, you're creating this family and the stage manager is part of that. And, and in some ways you're like the head of it. Maybe not the parent. Cause typically you think of the director as that, but like, um, and so uh, I was shout out to Justine. Um, again, she, we were talking a few weeks ago and she was actually super intimidated by me when she first met me mm-hmm. is because that first rehearsal, I am pretty much like yeah. seven o'clock is start time. It's like, all right, everybody, we're here to start. And then I have the stuff I need to say, but I need I to say it so quickly. <laughs> I, need to, yeah. I need to say it quickly and concisely so we can get to the table read. Like yes. that's like, that's my thing. So it's like, all right, so communication, I expect you to answer all my emails. Don't be late. You know, if yes. you're gonna, if you're going to be late, text me or call me, but don't be late. Right. Exactly. Those things. And then like, and then like when we hit the first break, it's, I'm just like, Oh, okay. And now I'm, I'm like the jovial John that everybody knows. Right. And I mean, I think like you also kind of have started to hint at it, that it also can translate into your emails as well. Like I have in the last like, few years really toned back the tone within my email because I didn't even realize like being so formal within emails can come across as like being distant or cold or mean because like you can re- really never tell someone's tone within like a text or an email. You can yeah. only assume what the intent is. And so I've always been very like, I don't want to say like generic in my writing, but I think there's a way that you can like, I, I, I have learned how to like both be professional and come across as warm. And I think that's also like in itself, like writing emails is its own form of art Mm -hmm. too. And like even rehearsal reports, it's like, like, what do you put in rehearsal reports? And like, what is your style? And it gets down to style again. Yeah. 
Yeah, most of my emails are like, hey, everybody, and then a congratulatory thing of the rehearsal or whatever. And then this is the information you need to know. Yes. And then, and then at the end, when highlighting things, oh, I'm so sorry. No. Um, and then at the end, um, a lot of times I'll be like, you know, in order to respond and let me know that you read everything, tell me what your character's favorite color is. Which I makes the like which makes the director right. happy because then they're I'm I'm having the their actors do character work um, on something as simple as favorite color. But I do. Um, I I mean I'm also I can be the same way, but I also recognize that like especially long informational emails or like welcome emails, for example, people will skim through. So I become also very strategic with what do I put in bold, and also like you know how in. Um, uh, like Apple mail, like how you can highlight things in different colors. So I'm very strategic about that where I'm like, okay, like what is like flowery and like anyway, more than anything, just like I'm being polite and this is what I'm explaining versus like, what do I need from you? So often I'm like, you know, first day of rehearsal is on and I'll like bold the date and location. And this is what I need from you is like bolded and highlighted and bright green. So it's like, well, if they're going to read anything, these are the things I need them to read and to like get, um, yeah, so I've become, <laughs> I, there was, I, I was supposed to like draft up a welcome email for, uh, or some kind of email for Balm and Gilead. And I was the first ASM on it. And my PSM's just like, oh, was it Balm and Gilead? Maybe it was another show. But, oh no, it was on uh, Our Town, which was my first show at UCSD. And the PSM at the time was just like, you highlight too many things. And I'm like, well, I need them to read these things. So like, if they're going to skim it, they're going to see those things. And he's just like, that's fair, but also tone it down. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I have a feeling that, you know, whatever grad school program I go to the first email, like to the cast, I'm going to send out somebody's going to be like, John, this is way too long. Right, I just, right. I don't know how to write a, uh, I don't know how to write a short information. Like I need all this right. information from you all. Um, right. And I need you to do it. Well, Rebecca and I talked for so long and had so much fun that it was just too long for one episode. I hope you really enjoyed our conversation about how Rebecca got started in theater and stage management. And I hope you come back to hear us talk about her time in grad school and really what theater means to the both of us. If you really enjoyed this episode but haven't listened to any previous ones, then please find me on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and newly on iHeartRadio. You can also watch the interview on YouTube. Just look for John O'Neill. So until next time.